81% of respondents say that they feel like they can make a difference in their communities. That's a huge number of people, uh, young people specifically, that feel like they can make a change in their communities. 75% of young people intend to go to college. So three out of four students today at least intend to go to college. So we still have a large number of people who see college in their future. And more than half of teens say that racial justice was the number one uh, social issue uh, that was important to them. Second to that was women's rights and third to that was LGBTQIA rights. And so we have these students that are politically sound and politically minded. We have these students that see college as a future for them, still as a viable path uh, toward a meaningful life, uh, toward meaningful work. And 81% of respondents feel like they can make a difference in their communities. And so it's almost like an increased level of urgency around social emotional learning because we don't want those opportunity gaps to hinder the potential um, that students are exhibiting around being more engaged in their communities and on college campuses. What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, where we talk about all things education. My name is Jordan Davis. I'm a professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. And today we're going to talk about all uh, things social emotional learning. And does social emotional learning actually work? Does it actually increase student success? Does it actually help colleges, universities, K through 12 districts reach the levels of student achievement, performance, and well-being that it promises to? Now, if you are a, a superintendent listening to this, I really want to set the scene for you today. So let me guess, you're a superintendent, you're listening to this, and your district is experiencing teacher and staff shortages, just like most school districts are across the country. Your counselors are stretched thin with increased demand for mental health counseling. Your parents are calling for stronger, poli uh, for stronger police presence in your schools. And your biggest disciplinary concern is not fist fighting in schools. It's actually cyberbullying. It's what students do on their phones when it comes to cyberbullying, when it comes to hate speech, when it even comes to classroom uh, distractions. We have school districts across the country that are banning the use of cell phones, not just in the classroom, but throughout the entire school. Students are being forced to put their cell phones into pouches at the beginning of the day, and they aren't getting them back until that final bell rings. Okay, and so these are some of the challenges that superintendents are dealing with. Uh, the data shows that if you are a school leader and you have these issues top of mind, you are not alone. Now, according to the Youth Right Now report, uh, it is an annual report that's done each year by the Boys and Girls Club, a huge study, 130,000 youth and young adults. So we're talking age nine to 18 across the country. And in 2023, in this survey, they found that 40% of young people were bullied on school property last year. That's up from 37% in 2022, and that's up from 25% before the pandemic in 2019. And 18% of students said that they were cyberbullied 
you know, said that they were cyberbullied. All right, and so we're talking about tens of thousands of students who are experiencing uh, cyberbullying and even more that are experiencing bullying on the daily basis throughout the country. But maybe this isn't your story, right? Maybe you're a classroom teacher listening to this. I have a ton of teachers that listen to this show. You spend just as much time talking to parents about their child's grades and behavior as you are teaching your math class. Like I literally hear uh, teachers tell this story on social media, specifically on TikTok, kind of recounting the types of conversations that they have to have with parents in regard to their students. Now, this sounds like a, a parental engagement issue, right? And so what conversations are school districts uh, having with the parents of the students? But it's also a little bit of the students too, right? Your students are more stressed and less resilient than they once were. It's another trend that I'm seeing a lot of teachers uh, kind of report out from their teaching practice and you're spending more time coaching students than teaching your curriculum. Maybe you send students to the office and they often come back unchanged and when you want to learn about, uh, when, you wa when you want to learn more about what you can do as a teacher in the classroom, uh, your professional development days, instead of being opportunities to actually learn how to transform your teaching, to learn how to support students, a lot of those uh, PD days are spent in staff meetings and are used as grading catch-up days, right? And so there's research to show that if you're a teacher and if any of this resonated with you, you are definitely not alone. Uh, there's research to validate those experiences. 70% of youth Back to that Youth Right Now report by the Boys and Girls Club, in that same study, it was found that 70% of youth say that when something goes wrong in their life, they can't stop worrying about it. That's 7 out of 10 young people who reported that. 47% of youth say that when they don't understand something, they stop trying entirely. Right, so the first time they don't understand something, they stop right away. And that's almost half of the students um, out of that 130,000 student study. Maybe there's a college dean uh, listening into the show. So we talked about superintendents, we talked about teachers. I know our college deans are also uh, keeping some issues top of mind. And maybe you have a different story. Maybe um, you, you're thinking about how their students are leaving campus unprompted right they're extending their leaves of absences without notice and your teachers are in a frenzy right maybe your maybe your campus ombudsperson is busier this semester than ever before maybe you're helping students navigate conflicts left and right like students are consistently emailing you requesting meetings uh, in order to get minor conflicts reserved or or you know minor conflicts resolved your department chairs are receiving more complaints from students about the things that they're hearing uh, from other students and faculty in the classroom. Those things might be on the rise. Some of them are harmful and destructive, and then others might be misunderstandings, simple ones, and maybe some are just, you know, encounters uh, of different viewpoints that students might not be ready for. Now, the data on this uh, seems to be more anecdotal, right? So we have less data about um, as far as national studies on the social emotional learning needs of college students. But the data is resounding around K through 12 students in the anecdotal data, right? When we talk about the reports and the, the journalism and the reporting 
of college professors being fired uh, because of the things that they say in the classroom about students elevating certain things to their department chairs and their deans. Um, you know, th this is definitely an issue that we are having to grapple with. Now, all of these changes, whether you're a superintendent, whether you're a university dean, or whether you're a teacher, they all have a couple of things in common. The first one is that they are all indicative of the social, political, and emotional responses of students today in 2024. Uh, the second one is that all of these problems that I just named exceed the issues of capacity, right? So hiring more student support staff, hiring more counseling staff for your district, for your college might help in the response to the issue, but is it really the nucleus of the, the, the solution? Is it really getting down to the root of the problem? Can it help our schools be more proactive instead of reactive and so hiring more staff is absolutely necessary and every university leader or, or school leader that's listening to this is thinking about the issue of capacity but really the issues that i just named kind of exceed that and then lastly all of these challenges are a threat to students learning in the classroom and their success after graduation now i wanted to point out some of the positives that also came out of the youth right now study so it's not all bleak uh, i was i was pleasantly surprised to hear that 81 percent of respondents say that they feel like they can make a difference in their communities that's a huge number of people uh young people specifically that feel like they can make a change in their communities 75 percent of young people intend to go to college so three out of four students today at least intend to go to college. So we still have a large number of people who see college in their future. And more than half of teens say that racial justice was the number one uh, social issue uh, that was important to them. Second to that was women's rights. And third to that was LGBTQIA rights. And so we have these students that are politically sound and politically minded. We have these students that see college as a future for them, still as a viable path uh, toward a meaningful life, uh, toward meaningful work. And 81% of respondents feel like they can make a difference in their communities. And so it's almost like an increased level of urgency around social emotional learning because we don't want those opportunity gaps to hinder the potential um, that students are exhibiting around being more engaged in their communities and on college campuses. And so when we examine the role of social emotional learning, we realize that it's been used for decades in K through 12 already. It's really become a buzzword in K through 12, a lot less so at the college level. Um, you don't really see a whole lot of college professionals specifically named social emotional learning. Um, as a priority for them, but I'm actually going to get into how colleges and how universities are going about social emotional learning. Um, and really there's two different conversations here. So I want to isolate the K through 12 conversation that has a specific structure that has specific systems in place that has specific connections to local and, and federal and state government. And we also have colleges and universities that kind of have their own uh, structures, which provides opportunities, but also limits to how SEL could be integrated. And so a study of more than 200 SEL programs showed that SEL programs yield behavioral and academic improvements. And so we see that when SEL is integrated in K through 12, it 
lessens the likelihood of suspensions. It lessens the likelihood of bullying and harassment. It increases uh, graduation rates and students' academic performance, both on standardized tests and the, the subject matter that they are studying in their classrooms. Research out of PBIS shows that for every dollar spent implementing P, uh, positive behavioral interventions and support, so it's kind of like another version of SEL, $105 are saved per student by reducing so by reducing you know reducing school suspension and dropout rates and so there is a clear return on investment when you invest a dollar into sel programs school districts across the country are getting over a hundred dollars uh return on their investment because they're able to lessen those disciplinary actions uh that are costly for students because as we know the school districts they get funding based off of how often their students are attending school. And so that's why absenteeism is such a big issue today in K through 12, because so much of the funding depends on, okay, who's actually sitting in the seats in the school day. Um, and, and that's a big thing that we need to keep top of mind. Now what's happening in K through 12 is that uh, there's really a, a big conversation around the political implications of social emotional learning. There are a lot of conservative activists, conservative organizations that have identified SEL or social emotional learning as being connected to critical race theory, as being connected to queer theory, uh, as being connected even to certain historical groups. And it really comes out of a language that has been put forth by organizations that support research around and provide resources for social emotional learning. So when we look at Castle, for example, uh, which is a well-known, uh, again, researcher and resource provider of social emotional learning, uh, they develop, again, resources and research around it. They say that, quote, SEL can be a powerful lever for creating caring, just, inclusive, and healthy schools. And so what a lot of conservative politicians, conservative activists have, have pulled from that is that just the word inclusivity um, is being used, it's kind of being weaponized to limit, to put bans on social emotional learning within school districts. Um, in that same, on that same webpage, again, this is from Castle, they go on to say, quote, in the context of SEL, equity and excellence refers to every student across race, ethnicity, family income levels, learning abilities, home language, immigration status, gender identity, sexual orientation, and other factors, engaging in high quality educational opportunities, unquote. And so again, those words, equity and excellence, we talk about race, ethnicity, all of these different uh, characteristics that students have, these identities that students have, a lot of conservative activists are not even, acknowledge, not, not even acknowledging that students have those identities and how harmful that is to students. And really just acknowledging that students are human beings in the classroom, like them seeing that as a, as a threat to learning and as being aligned with critical race theory, which has gained a lot of um, you know, pushback, a lot of vitriol from conservative 
actors. And so these are the challenges that we face as school leaders when it comes to implementing social emotional learning. Now the research on the returns of social emotional learning are so overwhelming, but it's the politics of it uh, that can really get in the way for a lot of folks. Now, for the schools that are using social emotional learning, for the districts that are in uh, more liberal states and more liberal neighborhoods, social emotional learning is, is going really well and it's, and it's implemented in different ways. And so most districts implement SEL by having teachers implement it into uh, their teaching practice. And so a lot of schools, the most popular way that this is done in K through 12 is that homeroom teachers are actually designating part of their homeroom period uh, towards social emotional learning. So this is an opportunity for those homeroom teachers to build a sense of community uh, among students, to have students get into groups, to play games at the beginning of the day, to have students work in groups, to have students be reflective about their learning, about their lives after graduation, about what they're experiencing outside of the classroom, about current events that are happening in our society. So these homeroom periods are serving to be really crucial for the school districts that are trying to implement social emotional learning. Uh, we also have pedagogical infusions of SEL. And I find this to be less common in K through 12 schools because it requires some teacher training, right? It requires teachers to be trained up in how to even think about integrating social emotional learning into an algebra class, into a biology class, you know, into a American history class and acknowledging that one learning is difficult, right? So even just getting students to be able to reflect on their learning process. And now we're talking about metacognitive skills that students are developing, having students practice working in teams um, and working through conflict, Having students, when we talk about history courses, for example, being able to take the role of certain historical figures and being able to, to empathize and even sometimes rationalize why certain historical figures made decisions. Uh, some of them poor decisions, some of them might have been helpful. Um, and having students be analysts and be critics of what they're learning. So not just this deposit model where it's the teacher depositing knowledge into the students is really a way to engage students around active learning while drawing in the emotional aspects of learning because learning is an emotional experience. And so what resources and supports can we provide for students as they try to navigate difficult topics that they're learning about? Whether it's technically difficult when we talk about algebra and geometry and even, you know, there are other STEM fields that are uh, technically difficult, even writing. Writing could be technically difficult as students kind of hone their identities as writers and try to form arguments and try to even engage in debate and be able to formulate their ideas and be able to articulate those. Those are all examples of engaging students around social emotional learning and through pedagogical innovations, the teachers that are actually doing this work, they need support too for the types of conversations that come up, for the ways that students respond to certain assignments. I've heard an example of this in higher ed just a couple of days ago, but students are literally being put in positions where they are asked to take the role of a particular historical figure or to at least take the side of a particular argument that they might not agree with as a way to build those empathy skills. And they're refusing to do so. And that, that refusal looks like, no, I am not comfortable 
taking this role, so I'm gonna sit out this assignment. Or I'm gonna engage, but I'm not gonna fully engage, or I'm not gonna fully give this my attention because that's not something that I agree with. And so part of social emotional learning is getting students to engage with an idea, but not necessarily own it, right? And when students see themselves as learners in the environment, when students can see that they can engage with the idea, they can sympathize and even sometimes empathize with someone who did a particular thing that they don't agree with within a learning environment, and that can stay true for the learning environment. It doesn't mean that they're a bad student or that they're being indoctrinated by this harmful idea. Um, being able to critically engage with the idea and to have the empathy to understand why someone would do something is necessary in creating social change. And so students are starting to learn some of those skills as early as middle school uh, for the social and emotional learning integration that we're seeing in K through 12. And as I just named, if this is happening in K through 12, um, there, there's definitely a need for it at the college level too. Because again, we're seeing that refusal from students when we look at college examples. We also see schools that have their wellness counselors and administrators facilitate social emotional learning. It's integrated into after school programs. It's integrated into assemblies. Speaking of assemblies, you have uh, speakers, motivational speakers that come in and integrate SEL. And I want us to be weary about motivational speakers who align themselves with SEL uh, because the, sometimes motivational speakers, when they come into a, a school and they deliver a message, some of those messages can actually, the way that they're laid out can be harmful um, when it comes to striving towards student wellness and creating a sense of belonging and community, a lot of these messages can be individualist in their approach. They can be elitist in their approach. They can be encouraging students to assimilate into grind culture and to not consider the importance of building community, to not consider the importance of, of rest and restorative practices when it comes to students who might be uh, struggling with their disciplinary actions, right? Not blaming students for the situations that they're in, but being able to say to students, you are not the problem, but we can all contribute to the solution to the problem. And so we kind of share responsibility to come together and create a solution to a particular problem. So it's best for us to do research on the speakers that we bring in. Um, and, and I wanna say for myself and the work that I do as a speaker, everything that I do when it comes to the self-talks program, which I'm gonna talk about in a little bit, or even just my work as a speaker in general, all of it is equity-centered. And so if you have an equity-centered approach to social-emotional learning, it, it really communicates a message of there are systems that are out of our control, um, but there are things that are within our control too. And how we treat each other in a learning environment is so key for not only our well-being, but also for preparing us to have the skills that we need in order to be successful after graduation. Because being able to discuss a topic with somebody that you don't agree with them on, that's a skill that you're gonna need after graduation. And that's a skill that research shows from organizations like the National Association of Colleges and Employers. They're looking for students or recent graduates who have those skills. The ability to set up an argument and being able to analyze something like those are skills that students need to have. The ability to manage stress 
in high pace, high stakes environments, that's a skill that employers are looking for. And if you're looking for a speaker to help with your SEL integration this year, I want to tell you a little bit about Self Talks. And so Self Talks is a student success program that's transforming middle, high school, and college students throughout the country. Now you might be familiar with the social emotional learning program. Maybe you already have an SEL program or even some SEL initiatives at your college, at your school district. Uh, but what makes Self Talks unique is how it combines content on academic success, equity and inclusion, student leadership, and mental health for students. And the research shows that when students are thriving in all of these areas, it leads to their personal success as students, as well as their professional success after graduation. Now, self-talks is fully customizable to your school or district's needs. There's no cookie cutter content, and every self-talk starts with a needs assessment with your school leaders to remove your specific barriers to student success. There are no boring lectures because it's delivered by me. So if I'm giving a talk, you know it's not gonna be a boring lecture. It's gonna be engaging, it's gonna be thought-provoking, it's gonna have student participation. It's PBIS and Castle aligned and informed by the science of teaching and learning, the stuff that has been proven to actually work. So if you're looking to take your students to new heights this semester or in the coming academic year, visit jdspeaks.com slash self-talks. Now that was all about K through 12. I actually wanna to go to the college landscape now. So how are colleges implementing social emotional learning? Uh, many colleges are taking different approaches. We have college that are, colleges that are offering courses uh, that are very aligned with social emotional learning. So not even labeling it as that, but having psychology courses that are called well-being. Like I, we literally have a course in the Georgetown catalog uh, that is called well-being and that gets a lot of um, you know, play from students. We have courses that are called happiness. We have courses that are, uh, you know, called this I may believe where students can think about uh, their values and their beliefs and their morals and how they play out in the world and how they see themselves contributing to a just society after graduation. All of these conversations uh, that students get to have in these unique course offerings that are usually offered in sociology, offered in psychology, even some business courses, right, that are designed for students who are going into entrepreneurship uh, that are focused specifically on uh, charitable uh, organizations, nonprofit work that are intentionally built around business in service of social change. And so these are examples of how colleges and universities are providing students the opportunity to engage in social emotional learning through the course offerings. Now we have resident assistants that implement SEL programs into their um, into their work. And so I was a former resident assistant in undergrad, so I know all about the monthly programs that resident assistants have to put on uh, for their students. And it could range from anything to inviting a guest speaker to talk about a topic that's aligned with student well-being, or it's doing something as small as, uh, you know, painting or small art uh, you know, engagement with students where students get to draw and get to color and do these things that um, that are good for our minds, even board games and engaging students that way too. Uh, student support services have events 
Um, they also have support groups that meet weekly, uh, sometimes monthly throughout the semester. Uh, Race-based affinity groups are an avenue or vehicle to promote social emotional learning on campus. Uh, students who identify along the lines of gender, along the lines of religion, those are all supports and resources that colleges provide um, when it comes to, to social emotional learning. Now, there are a few things that I wanted to outline before we end here that I don't want us to forget. Uh, the ability to have conversations across cultural differences is one of the number one skills that employers are looking for today. Um, and it's one of the things that colleges and universities are asking for today. And so if you're a college administrator or you have a college or you go to a college that is not implementing social emotional learning, this is a skill that students need to learn, uh, especially as colleges are making headlines, sometimes not in the best way, I'm sure that there are university presidents and provosts that are thinking deeply about how to build those types of skills within their students. Uh, there are, and I wanna do a reframing when it comes to social emotional learning too. And it's around this idea of super skills and not soft skills. And so I actually got this from a conference. Like I think that's pretty cold. Like for, forming a relationship with super skills and not soft skills because a lot of adults have reduced those skills to soft skills because we don't think that it belongs in the curriculum. We think that students' ability to solve math equations and to have these quote-unquote hard skills um, that are being commoditized, that are being uh, put on a pedestal when we talk about uh, the companies that students are applying to and things like that, but it's actually the super skills, the ability to debate and form arguments, the ability, the ability to develop empathy for the people that you work for and work with, the ability to solve problems, critical thinking, analysis skills, uh, handling stress and being able to cope with stress, um, healthy work-life balance, organizational skills, all of these things, public speaking, all of these skills are actually super skills because so often we encounter research that we know is, is sound and we know the things that work in the classroom. We know the things that serve as a threat to student well-being. And we ask students all the time, well, why don't you do them? Right? And it's the development around the super skills that makes the, the duh moments, right? Like the obvious solutions, not so obvious. It's the super skills and the lack thereof that makes those obvious skills or those obvious solutions hard to implement. And so when we develop students' super skills and we build resilience, we build a sense of hope, we build the ability to articulate themselves and now students are building their own confidence, they have a more positive self-image, they're able to walk into a room, they're able to walk into a boardroom, they're able to walk into a, a meeting, a high-stakes meeting, they're able to, to, to address a crowd and be able to be the change agents that they want to be and that we need them to be, right? Because when we have 81% of students that say that they can change their communities, they have this sense of wanting to make things better around them, it's imperative for us to equip them not only with the hard skills, but also the super skills that are going to change hearts, change minds, change ideas, change opinions, so that we can actually get to the things that we know are going to serve 
uh, our communities well and our society well more broadly. And just to end here, I want to talk uh, just a little bit more about self-talks and what makes self-talks unique. And so SELF is an acronym and it stands for Success, Equity, Leadership, and Flourishing. Um, and I wanted to give some examples of how we see those things as connected, right? Because you have social emotional learning programs that are usually isolated from the core curriculum. Again, it might be an after school program. It might be a specific course. Um, and it's really hard to integrate. Well, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to integrate social emotional learning into pedagogical practice, uh, but it's also not done very often, at least right now. Um, and so self-talks is, is really innovative in that it's combining these conversations, it's bringing together these topics that usually aren't brought together. And when students can bring what they're experiencing outside of the classroom, inside of the classroom, it cements their learning when they're able to connect. Okay, how does my study habits? How do my study habits affect my well-being? Or how do how do my ideas of power and privilege and sense of community affect my leadership style? Right, like these things need to be connected. And so it's not just a leadership program. It's not just an individual SEL program. It's not just an academic success or college readiness program. It's having these usually separate pieces and separate offices and separate, you know, siloed conversations and bringing them together so that students can see, okay, when I'm not able to ask for help, where is that coming from? Is it because of my leadership style? Is it because of my own conceptions of, of power? Am I afraid to ask for help because I fear how I'm going to be seen by others? That's an equity conversation. Because if there's a sense of community that's built, if there's a sense of trust and we've already destigmatized asking for help as a school community, that's going, that is the thing that's going to lead the student to do the thing that they know is right, but that's really difficult to do. And so, um, for example, many students don't care about creating change. Well, many students do care about creating change in their communities, but specifically, um, our college students end up losing some of that hope when they get through college. So either they find out that the work that they want to do isn't highly paid or that there are extreme barriers to entry um, for that work. They kind of get disenchanted by the idea of solving societal issues and they run to the field that's going to make the most money. Um, I know a lot of law students and that's a big thing when students go into law school, right? A lot of these students, they come in um, wanting to be, uh, you know, defense attorneys and public defenders and kind of serve the needs of, of people. But then they get wrapped up into business law. They get wrapped up into, um, you know, the more lucrative avenues um, of law. They get into corporate law um, and they kind of lose their their passion for it. Right. The passion that they came in with in order to solve problems. Um, in their societies. And so this is an example of where career success and potentially mental health meet. So when we talk about that flourishing aspect, realizing that young professionals in some fields, when we talk about STEM fields, specifically um, around nursing, uh, around, uh, you know, becoming doctors, but specifically nurses, because they're in those high stress environments, uh, medical practitioners, when we talk about being uh, politicians, when we talk about business leaders and entrepreneurs, again, lawyers, 
these are all extremely important, extremely rewarding career fields, but they are also the fields that are known to guide students toward unhealthy mental and physical health habits. And so young professionals in those fields really struggle and they burn out early um, and they are even prone to substance abuse, uh, substance abuse in some of those fields because of how demanding they are. And so we're not just talking to students about career success and what it means to get the job. We're talking to students about, okay, when young people like you get the job, here's what's happening to some of them. And so what, build, what skills can we build as students to make sure that we're putting ourselves in professional environments that prioritize our wellness to make sure that when we do feel overburdened, that we do when we do feel overloaded, we know the resources that are available to us as young adults. Because when we graduate from college, that counseling center that was seeing us for quote unquote free, obviously we pay for tuition. A lot of students pay for tuition, but to have that level of access to resources that's going to change when you graduate. And so knowing your resources and knowing where to get help, all of those conversations are important. Uh, Work-life balance and how to kind of design your life so that you're not just achieving the professional success, but you also have the personal and social success to go with it. Another one is redefining leadership for young people. So this is something that I love to do when I facilitate my leadership trainings for students who are in student government, for students who are presidents and vice presidents of career and technical student organizations. Um, leadership is, is such an important topic because it's such an abstract concept, right? Everybody might have a different definition of leadership. You might, that, you might think that leadership means a certain position that you hold. You might think that leadership is to be the top uh, thing, the, the, the top performer in your field. That's your conception of leadership. Uh, but sometimes leadership is about uh, serving the group that you're intended to serve. Um, and so why do leaders make bad decisions? Who do leaders, you know, why do leaders cause harm to others? Like what actually drives people uh, good people to do bad things when they get into leadership positions. So when people have power, they're making these types of decisions that before they had the power, they weren't making. And so what does it look like for you to be able to progress professionally? What does it look like for you to hold on to your morals and your values, but to also allow those to, to be malleable with new information and new experiences, but to, to not be so tunnel vision and so protective of what you believe that you are unwilling to learn from others uh, because so much of, of leadership is also about flexibility and empathy and being able to learn uh, along your leadership journey. And so these are the types of conversations that are had with students in self-talks. And this is usually done through school assemblies, it's done through uh, certain workshops that we do with students. And so as a school district, as a college, you could think about, okay, I want uh, Jordan to come in to address all of my students uh, about his story, about the whole self-talks framework. So there's elements of success, equity, leadership, and flourishing throughout that keynote. But in the packages that we offer, we also offer 
individualized workshops for different student groups, right? So it might be a workshop on work-life balance for first-year students. It might be a career development workshop for your graduating seniors. It might be a mental health workshop for your male leadership group, right? Like maybe you have a, a group of, of male students who um, might be struggling with mental health challenges. And so these, this is the type of support that is provided through self-talks. And as we end today, I want to leave you with a listener question. How is your college, school, or district implementing social-emotional learning? Let me know by sending me a DM at JD Speaks on Instagram or by sending your thoughts to jordan at jdspeaks.com. My name is Jordan Davis. Thank you all for your time, for your ear, for your eyes, and I hope to see you in the next episode.